Welcome to the Watershed Investigations, Tales from the Frontline of the Water Crisis. I'm Rachel Savage and my co-host is Liana Hosea. Today we're going to hear from Naomi Morris, whose life has been turned upside down by catastrophic flooding in Uganda. And then we'll speak to Sir David King, the UK's former government chief scientist, who plans, amongst a lot of other things, to halt the impacts of the climate crisis by refreezing the Arctic. Wow, that sounds really ambitious. I look forward to hearing about those exciting plans. But first, welcome, Nyombi, and thank you for joining us. We've been really impressed with your climate activism from protecting forests and organising tree planting in your home country of Uganda as part of your organisation, Earth Volunteers. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about how climate change has affected your life? Thank you for the opportunity. Back in 2008, we had floods in our district. It's called Mutalija, and over 400 people were displaced. So we are among the people who are forced to, to live. In that situation, we lost our dad. He never died, but he just disappeared after discovering things were crazy. Like getting a job in Kampala, you require a lot of connections and a lot of qualifications. So when he left... I was like confused and things became crazy because my mom again had to struggle. Were you the oldest in the family, so it was down to you to provide? Yeah. So now mom had to look for possible ways. She worked as a cleaner, she worked as a housemaid. Some of our bosses were able to support me until I completed some studies. So yeah, that's how floods affected us. Because when you have a land in Uganda, you own it completely. But once you lose it, it is very hard to buy a land in this generation. So you went from being landowners and farmers. How did your living conditions change when you moved to Kampala? What, what's the comparison? Food was free. Like You just have to go and plant or grow like beans and so on. But here, you have to have money every day for you to survive. What about some of the other people in your community and what their experiences are with climate change? What else is happening now in, in Uganda? We have districts like Kembali. Every year we have to lose people due to environmental catastrophes like floods. The same thing in Western Uganda, where our president comes from. Since 2020, we have been evacuating at least 2,000 people. And when you go to northern Uganda, last year they counted 900 dead bodies due to starvation. So today we are seeing starvation increasing, drought increasing, and no support. So all these are linked to climate change. What kind of support are you hoping for? Is it more from your own government, more from external governments? What, what needs to be done? We need global collaboration whereby they come up with finance, real finance, not words about finance. Talk about the 100 billion that was promised us. It has been three years since they last talked about it at COP26. We are still waiting, where is this money? People who acknowledge that they have created this crisis, they are the one to blame, have failed to come up with the support. Loss and damage is also one of the issues that we brought to the attention last year at COP27. 
It was also acknowledged and added to agenda, but they never told us who is going to pay. When will this money be delivered? How will it be delivered? Because so many times reports have come out even from Oxfam where they say the money that was promised to these communities is being released in form of loans. So people who lost their properties, who lost their farms, again have to borrow money to recover. So we need money not in form of helping, but in form of compensating what we have lost. Obviously there's a lot of migration as a result of all these problems. Is, is Uganda experiencing migration into the country as well as around and within the country? We have the highest number of migrants in the world, apart from maybe Somalia or Sudan, I don't know. When you look at Somalia, since 2015, they have been reporting that there is drought in the country, they need support, and the only option is to migrate. Instead of UK welcoming them, they sent them to Rwanda, a developing country, Rwanda. You get. How do you feel about that when you look at the UK wanting to send them to Rwanda? For me, I'm like, these people have betrayed us. Can I just say thank you very much for joining us and uh, please stay with us because we will hope to hear from you again after we've spoken to Sir David King at the end of the podcast. So welcome, Sir David King, to the Watershed podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Sir David is founder of the Centre for Climate Repair at the University of Cambridge, and he was the government's chief scientific advisor from 2000 to 2007, and permanent special representative for climate change from 2013 until 2017, amongst many, many other things. Thank you for joining us, Sir David. My pleasure. And we've just heard from Nyombi about how flooding basically forced him from his home and changed his life forever. And so many others, of course, have similar stories. Over 59 million people were internally displaced in 2021 across the world. Most were displaced by climate-related disasters, according to the UN Human Rights Commissioner, and that's estimated to surge to 1.2 billion people by 2050. And just looking around the world at the moment, some of the extreme events, we've got uh, that horrendous multi-year drought in the Horn of Africa, which is millions of people teetering on the edge of famine. We've got tens of thousands of people being evacuated in India and Pakistan as they brace for an enormous cyclone. We've got record surface temperature in the North Atlantic Ocean. Is this just the beginning, Sir David? What can you tell us about this? Globally, planetary temperature has risen by 1.25, 1.3 degrees centigrade above the average for the pre-industrial period. Everyone is saying we've got to stay below 1.5 for a manageable future. We're very close to that. But the temperature in the Arctic Circle region is now 3 degrees, over 3 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level because all of that ice that was covering the North Pole, the Arctic Sea, has now been melting far more quickly than the scientific community predicted. The air above the Blue Sea warms as well. And that air then travels over the landmass around, including Greenland. And on Greenland, there's enough ice that when it all melts, global sea levels will rise by... 7.5 to 8 meters, meters. But even by the end of the century, we will see many global cities sitting on coastlines becoming unmanageable unless this is arrested. And so the second event happening in the Arctic Circle region is the landmass has got permafrost. 
And so as the permafrost warms, the methane is being emitted into the atmosphere that over a 20-year period, enough methane would be put into the atmosphere that temperatures may rise by 5 to 8 degrees centigrade. Now the third thing, and, and this is where Nyombi and everyone else is being impacted, is that around the Arctic Circle is an anti-clockwise, very strong wind has been separating the cold air in the North Pole region from the warm air from the tropics. Okay, the wind is now blasted away by this warm air over the North Pole. And so we saw Texas having a temperature of minus 13, minus 16 degrees centigrade. And then at the same time, what you've got is the west coast of America suffering the highest temperatures ever observed. So since the Arctic Circle started going through this transition, we are witnessing the whole world's global atmospheric system and weather systems changing. You talked about a lot of stark weather events. And just to pick up on just just one of them, I mean, that loss of the ice sheets. I was in Greenland a few years ago, and you could kind of hear regularly these huge rumbles like thunder and crashes, parts of the glacier just kind of crash into the rivers. I mean, can you kind of explain some of those consequences of the loss of the ice sheets? Greenland is now losing a significant amount of ice every year, and it is contributing to sea level rise. We don't know if it's irreversible at this point in time. And many of us, and I'm one of them, are working on projects that would enable us to do something that sounds impossible, which is to refreeze the Arctic, to buy time by reflecting sunshine away from that layer of ice. And we're looking at how we can cover that with uh, marine clouds, white clouds. So how are those marine clouds formed? It sounds fascinating. So each tiny droplet of seawater contains a single crystal of salt, This dust cloud of salt forms, picks up water vapor again, and bingo, you've got a a nice white cloud. Are you talking about cloud seeding then? It is cloud seeding, but it's using the natural substance from seawater in exactly the same way as clouds overseas are formed. What stage are you at with it now? What stage of the project? How close are you to being able to deploy it? Right, so the biggest challenge is forming these droplets with a small enough size that we create white clouds. But we're also working with a group in Australia. They want to see if they can cool the water of the Great Barrier Reef by the same technique. And uh, they've got a ship out there and they're spraying water up. What's the balance between, you know, needing to come up with kind of new innovations like this and also reducing consumption and nature conservation, like pain developing countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, or uh, Nyombi's country, Uganda, paying not to sell the forests, not to sell the peatlands. You know, is there too much emphasis on sort of unproven technologies? I don't think there can be enough emphasis on this. What, what is the loss and damage from current level climate change? And the answer is, I believe, in the region of a quarter to half a trillion dollars a year, loss and damage. That's the, the current cost of not managing Uh, what I've described happening in the Arctic Circle region. Even though this is described as a technology, I'm calling it biomimicry, uh, nevertheless, we have to test these things out. 
We've got to see if we can do it. Because if we can, then surely we have to do it. Could I bring Niambi in at this point? Because I know that one of the points that he's interested in, it relates to climate finance. So, Niambi. Thank you. It has been actually 14 years since uh, COP15 was held in Copenhagen. There was a budget that was put in place in, for climate uh, finance, the 100 billion, if you remember, and it had a deadline by 2020. I just wanted you to tell me how you feel about this 100 billion. Is, this, is it still enough? 100 billion was estimated as the required transfer of money per annum between the developed world and the developing world to help them to manage not only the transition, but also the impacts of climate change. Today, if we were coming up with a realistic number, it would be closer to a quarter of a trillion dollars a year. Those of us in the West who are able to get insurance are not quite aware of the challenges in countries where there is no such ability to insure. But I think if we're, if we're all going to work together on this, uh, Nyombi, we need a complete change of heart, change of mind. We need to all be pulling together. And yeah, the billionaires have failed actually to release the money in time. And one thing also I wanted to mention is this money that is being released is coming in form of loans. You, you have to pay it back at a very high interest rate. I mean, we're talking about 18% a year. We can't say this is only the problem of the donors. This is also the problem of governments locally. But I've got to say, Uganda has seen many years of rapid economic growth. And I think what we can see as well is the opportunities for going into renewable energy are enormous. So you will know. Africa is full of very small villages. And if you try to connect those villages with a single electric grid for a country, you've got a vast cost in setting those grids into place. And you can proceed much more quickly with renewable energy when the energy is provided locally by sun and by wind. So we we need to have a complete change. How we achieve this is difficult to see I mean, it is interesting that the United States, which has dragged its feet on climate change, I just have to say, and I now understand the power of the fossil fuel lobby in the economic system in the West. It's extremely powerful. Why are we having COP28 in the Middle East with a president of COP28, and I have met him, and he's a charming man. I've got nothing against him personally. But he is also running the oil company in his country, as well as being president of COP28. There is is something strange going on, which most of the world is unaware of. And that is an almost capture of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change by this uh, fossil fuel lobby. Can anything even happen at COP? You know, there's a lot of cynicism around COP, and especially as you brought up, it's being held in the UAE, authoritarian, major oil-producing country. Are there just going to be business deals and no stick for big polluters? What do you see happening? How does COP work? Nearly 4,000 official negotiators meeting every year for two weeks. That's the least efficient way of negotiating anything. And 
It's no longer happening, but the United States would turn up with 160 official negotiators, and those people would walk around persuading other countries not to do anything on climate change. And here we are faced with this massive global disaster. Nyombi, you've, you've raised a very, very important question. We're not delivering on our promises. And our promises should have been increasing year on year since that 100 billion was first mentioned. And at the same time in the UK, we're looking at two new big developments in the North Sea for oil at Rosebank and, and Cambo. Do you think those should be given the green light? Absolutely not. The Prime Minister and the Cabinet were saying fuel prices are going up. We're all suffering from that. So the British government is going to give a green light. And giving a green light means also giving a vast sum of money to the oil companies to go and search for more oil. Typically, when you make a new oil discovery, 12 to 15 years before it's in the marketplace. It's got nothing to do with the war in uh, the Ukraine. It's got everything to do with opportunism. With globalization, are we just too tangled in this enormous system to extricate our ourselves in time to make those changes? Turning these oil tankers around metaphorically is just seemingly impossible to do it very, very quickly. But is there an answer to that? It's not just the oil and gas industry. We have an economic system that has been successful. It's raised the well-being of people in the world by a substantial amount over the last 100, 150 years. China has seen 850 million people come out of poverty since the year 2000. That's their rapid rate of economic improvement. However, all of this is driven by consumerism. We really have to make this transition away from allowing the free market system to make all the decisions for us. And believe me, they do. Uh, those people who invest in this heavily and really make wealth out of it are very much governing how we all operate. We need to wake up to this. The whole biological system of the world is collapsing because of what we human beings are doing through our consumerism. That was a great way to round everything up. And thank you so much to David King and Nyombi. That brings us to the end of this episode. So Rachel and I will be back in a fortnight with more tales from the front lines of the water crisis. Thank you.